0: Genesis 19, or Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Peram Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's hill, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, "'Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted.' Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, today we are in a story that's familiar to many of us, but for some, it might be the first time that they've heard it, and we're thankful that this story is in here. It's a story about life, it's a story about family dynamics, but ultimately it's a story about your choosing, your election, and and being with this family from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob so the covenant blessing may go forth. And so, Lord, with ears to hear and eyes to see, may you work by the power of your Spirit in each of our hearts. Not only do we understand this text, but this this intellectual understanding goes to our heart and then it leads to our hands and our feet to take the good news of the gospel, the good news of your sovereign election, you orchestrating the world according to your love and grace and mercy. May we take that to the world in our circles of influence as we walk out these doors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and be seated. Quick drink. All of us probably watch some TV. Some of us probably have our favorite TV shows that we watch. Uh, um, there are over 400 shows that uh, were on air in the year of 2018, and almost half of them, 188, was reality TV. Who watches reality TV shows in here? All right, let's, let's be real now. Go ahead. Everyone participate, right? Who watches reality TV in here, right? Uh, we, probably most of us do, right? Maybe um, you know, you've watched The The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Survivor, uh, The Kardashians, uh, America's Got Talent, which I think is actually the number one reality show. So You Think You Can Dance, The Voice, American Idol. I mean, there's all kinds of shows. And these shows obviously have some entertainment value to them. Uh, there's some that are interesting, and there's some that are actually even inspiring to see certain individuals um, inspire you by some of the physical abilities or intellectual abilities that they have. But... In reality, when we come to the Bible and read the the stories of reality in the Scriptures, uh, the TV reality shows don't really hold a candle to the Bible. Uh, The Bible has plot twists. The Bible has uh, love and betrayal and loyalty. Uh, It has drama. Uh, It has all the things that reality TV has because reality TV is about life and the Bible is about life. But the reason why I say it can't hold... Uh, The reality TV shows can't hold uh, a candle to the Bible is because the Bible, in every single story in the Bible, it points to the story of redemption, your story of redemption, my story of redemption. It points to the one and true hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in these stories, the stories of Scripture, that we see that our greatest needs, our wants, and our desires are answered. The answers dwell in the Scripture. Scripture. And so, hey, you guys have the freedom to watch reality TV. It's okay. I mean, you guys got a little nervous when I asked the question. You have freedom in Christ to watch these shows. Um, you have freedom to, to have, you know, bachelorette viewing parties. Yeah, not the men, right? The, the women, okay. But here's the thing. Uh, have the same passion. Have the same anticipation reading the scriptures as you do for those, those parties. Read your Bible with just as much passion to see. Oh, I can't wait to see what happens next. Uh, be as committed to uh, the crossing church and Sunday gathering and life groups and journey groups, and than you are on to Monday nights at eight p.m. Right? So we have the freedom, but again, let's make sure that we don't negate or by um, yeah negate the, the the stories of Scripture. Ignore is the word I'm looking for. We're in Genesis 25 and 27 over the next several weeks, and we're going to see some great reality TV, honest stories about life, the grittiness about life, and family dynamics. And all these stories, like I said, point us to Christ, and today we're going to see some of the greatest uh, truths of the doctrine of of redemption in Scripture. We're going to see the doctrine of election here, God's freedom to choose and to ordain the story of redemption as He feels the need to, according to His good pleasure, so let's dive in on Genesis 25, verse 1 through 18. And what we see first is the mantle is passed. The mantle is passed. Verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. And then it goes on to name six more sons that he had. But we read in verse 5 that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac Eastward to the East Country, and what we want to focus on the main point is in verse five verse five Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. This is going to be the theme starting here in verse twenty in chapter twenty five and really through the theme through the rest of the Bible, because as we know if you 've been with us over the past weeks that Isaac has been the child. He had a miraculous birth a couple chapters ago in Isaiah, I mean, in Genesis chapter 21. He would be the the son that Abraham would pass his blessing on to, the, the chosen one, the child of promise who would be now become the head of the family when Abraham has passed. He would carry on the legacy of this covenant blessing, this covenant promise in whom the savior of the world promised way back in Genesis 3.15 would come. The seed of the woman would come through Isaac. So Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. And verse 6 even emphasizes this fact by Abraham sending all of his other children to the east. Again, if you've been with us since Genesis and, uh, Genesis 1, you know that every time we see that that people go east in the Bible, starting in Genesis chapter 3, it means that people are moving away from the Lord. So Abraham here is emphasizing Abraham is blessing Isaac. Isaac is staying uh, standing pat while all the rest of the sons are moving east away from the Lord. Abraham again is making a statement that highlights that Isaac is the chosen one in whom the blessing will come through, not the other six sons, or even Ishmael's seven. Verse 7 These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of his years, and he was gathered to his people. Isn't that a great statement on life? A solid biographical sketch of Abraham's life. Abraham died in a good old age, a man, an old man full of his years. And what we see here is a a new section of of, that's about to take place. Here, Abraham, the the patriarch, the one that the Lord chose out of all the peoples of the nation, he chose this man out of this city of Ur to be the the family tree that will carry his blessing. Here, he dies physically, but it's here his legacy begins. Verse 9, when we see this, we see his funeral. And, and really, when I read verse 9 for the first time in my study this week, I said, wow, out loud. Look at verse 9. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons buried him in a cave. And It goes on to say that he buried him with his wife, Sarah, in, this, in the caves of what's known as modern-day Hebron. It's a little bit south of Jerusalem. You can go and, and visit uh, Abraham's grave. But, but what I said, wow, is... is not that Isaac was there. Well, we expected Isaac to be there, but not Ishmael. And that's what went, what went, wow, Ishmael is at his daddy's funeral. Ishmael, as you guys recall, was uh, sent off with Hagar, his mom, in Genesis chapter 21. Because of Sarah's request that Ishmael was, was vying, a sibling rivalry with with Isaac and, and maybe even having some abuse, so they sent Ishmael off according to Sarah and also the Lord's command. But Abraham didn't want to do that. This was Abraham's first son. He 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 loved Ishmael. He didn't want to send him off, but he was obedient to the Lord and he did. And so one thing we have noticed is that there's about 80 years that pass in between this this taking place. Uh, maybe 70 because I think Ishmael was in his teens, so maybe 70 plus. And so I believe the reason why Ishmael came back is because he loved his daddy. He, he, he loved his father. And he knew that Abraham loved him. And in these years in which they were spent away, maybe there was some reconciliation that happened. Maybe they got together and, and, and walked through their differences on their circumstances. And the question that Ishmael had, like, why, Daddy, would you send me and Mommy away? And maybe they got to rebuild their relationship. And that led me to thinking Today, with you and me in mind, is who in here has buried a parent or their parents? Go ahead and raise your hand. Who has buried a parent? I, I, I buried my mom. She died suddenly, as many of you guys know, on Christmas Eve, way back in the in the early '90s. And it's difficult. It was hard. It was tough. It was devastating. In particular, especially when there's a close relationship between you and your mom or you and your dad or or your family. It's it's hard to to bury a parent, but it's also hard. When there wasn't a good relationship there, right? And a parent suddenly dies, the, the the pains, the struggles, the sin, the strife that was there was never really dealt with, and there's still a rift between you. But the problem is, is when that parent dies, that that rift will be there forever because they're dead and you can never have those conversations, and then all of a sudden, there's a bunch of guilt for those who are still here, and you think, like, oh, man, I wish I would have reached out to my mom and dad to have those conversations, maybe like Ishmael and Abraham did. And so let me just encourage you, everyone in here, to meditate and pray on Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And in particular, I want to live peaceably with your parents. So even younger kids in here can relate to this. Do what you can to be reconciled with your parent or parents now for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's the gospel thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the loving thing to do. And that will also too lead to, to freedom and not guilt if that parent suddenly pass. And so I encourage you to to, to reach out and Maybe like Ishmael did with Abraham, and so when that parent dies, you can go to the funeral and there won't be not weird, awkward family dynamics. And for those of us that that do have a good relationship, just call your mom and dad this week and say, hey, love you, thinking of you, you know, thank you for, for being a great mom or dad. Not perfect, so take advantage of that. Ishmael comes back and pays respects to his father even when they were under difficult circumstances that separated them. And then we see in verses 12 through 18 that um, the promises made to Abraham and also to Ishmael and to Hagar were fulfilled. Now, you, you notice that little phrase in verse 12, these are the generations. As you guys know, so again, if you've been with us in Genesis, this phrase has happened, I believe, a seven, a six other times. This is the seventh. And when we ever see this phrase, these are markers in the story of Genesis that, that a section of the of the book is closing, and here, we haven't seen the, la- the last time we saw this phrase was in Genesis eleven twenty seven 27, when we saw the calling of Abraham. So what's being mentioned here is Abraham's life story is now being closed. And then Ishmael's is just a real short story. It's 12 through 18, because the rest of the, the, the Bible story in verse 19 will focus on the next toledit, the next generation, the generation of Isaac's family. Because why? Because verse 11 says that after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. And now the focus becomes on Isaac and his family tree. In particular, we'll see to his son Jacob, which leads us to our second point. The mantle is passed through a prophecy, or it's passed down the line, verses 19 through 28. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took re- Rebekah, his wife. How many of you guys just go like, whoa, wait, wait, he was 40 years old? When I, when, I, when I grew up and just listening to this story, and this is the first time I was like, oh my goodness, I recognized that Isaac wasn't a young man. I've always read this story like Isaac was a young man in his 20s when he first re- met Rebekah. Not 40 well, maybe, you know, forty's the new 20 back then because they lived a little bit longer. But I just always had, was like, wait, this is a young man. He's, he's not 40 years old. And again, what we're going to see over the next several weeks with, with Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob is that the providential hand of the Lord. And what we're going to see is that Isaac, his life really mirrors his father's life, Abraham, in a, in a lot of ways. And we'll see this over the next several chapters But in some ways, we see a difference. And really, in the next verse, we see one of those differences. Look at verse 21. It's an awesome difference. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Why? Because she was barren. Does that that ring a similarity to Abraham? Right? And his wife, Sarah, she was also barren. Now, I said this is good, isn't it? Not that, that, that... Rebecca was barren. That's not good. We know the struggle that it is, especially in that culture. It's like if you were married and you were barren, you were seen like there was something wrong with you, and that's not the case whatsoever. But it was not good that she was barren. So what does Isaac do? Is Is his response the same as his father Abraham? Do you remember what Abraham did when he heard that his wife was barren? What did he do? He went off with his handmaid, his servant gal, to have sex with another woman to produce his heir. That's not what Isaac does. We see Isaac is a little bit different than his father Abraham and praise the Lord. What does Isaac do? He turns to the Lord and he prays for his wife. This is a godly man. He turns to the Lord and prays for his wife. We see later on, or we we read that, that when these twins are born, he's going to be 60 years old. So it's possible that Isaac prayed for his wife for 20 plus years around this topic. What a great principle. He's praying for his wife. He loves his wife. He sees that his wife is in this situation, that she's barren. And the best way to care for her soul is to pray for her, is to lift her up before the throne of grace and intercede for her. Husbands, do you love your wife so much That you are battling for her heart before the throne of grace. That you know what makes her tick. Not only the the highs, but also where she's struggling. Where she's suffering. Are you engaged in your wife's life at that level? Not just at a physical level to meet those needs by going to work, getting a job. But more importantly, her emotional needs, her spiritual needs. Are you so in tune that you are interceding for her before the throne of grace on a consistent basis? Isaac prayed for his wife for 20 plus years. This week, it's amazing how the Lord and His timing and how a lot of times, if you guys know, anytime you lead a study or do a Bible study, usually the Lord teaches you so that you can teach others. And And here we are, that it was like the Lord was saying to me, time to do some work on you, Aaron, as a husband, uh, to get you out of your own little world and and to love your wife like Isaac loved Rebecca. Uh, It was uncanny. I just got done studying this verse. I think it was about Wednesday and um, just got done reading this verse and doing some study on it. So I went home from lunch and when I got home, Rita was fired up, boy. She was... I think Maddie was with us, right? Was it Maddie? Oh, I forget. she, and Rita was just stressed and she was just like letting the world know. And there I was, right? And I didn't, I didn't say much. I just listened and that probably frustrated her a little bit more, right? Because I was just meditating on this passage like, Oh my gosh, the Lord is like hitting me upside the head of the two for us. Like this is a time for you to, to love your wife. And so I listened and I ate and then I, and I went back and, and I just spent the next several minutes, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes praying for, praying for my wife and the situation that she was talking about, or the situations. And, and when I came back hours later, there she was, sitting in my chair with a smile on her face, you know, and everything was cool. And I thought, wow. So men, first single men, but men, can we make a pack in here this morning? That we would be men of prayer first and foremost. This is for all men in here. It's for everyone, but in particular the men in this context. Single men, you can be praying for your future wife. That the Lord will be working on your heart to take out your, your selfishness so you can be in tuned with your wife. You can, you can be praying for uh, the marriages in this church and the men in this church to, to be attuned to their wives. But men that are, are married, can we make a pact in here to be praying consistently for our wives? and challenging one another, and following up with one another, and seeing how we're doing in this area. And then we can watch the Lord move. Watch, watch the Lord move and answer uh, our prayers for our wives. Just like he answered mine, just like he answered Isaac's prayer. Look at the verse in the end of 21. It says, and the Lord granted his prayer. The Lord granted Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Amen? So men, can we do that together? Let's do that together. And then we see between verses 21 and 22, again, there's a 20-year difference uh, that happens. And it says this, uh, uh, Rebecca's pregnant, and she gives a little insight on to how, she, how her pregnancy was. The children struggled together within her. And she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So what did she do? She prayed. We got a praying family here, which is awesome. She went to inquire, pray of the Lord. And again, I want to highlight that word struggle. There's a reason why I emphasize that word struggle. It literally means to, to crush or to be crushed. So what's happening in Rebecca's belly? Rebecca has these twins, as we know, and they're having a WWF cage match going on in her belly right now, Right? I mean, one of them is slamming the other baby's head against the rib cage. You know, the other one's got the umbilical cord trying to choke the other kid out, right? And there's a struggle, and you can just see it in the belly. Now, we've had several women in here that have twins, and, and, and they know exactly what's happening here. They know exactly what it means to have two baby, two womb mates, right? Womb mates growing and vying for their own space. There's a struggle here. And it's killing her. So she prays, why is this happening to me? And the Lord answers her. And he answers her with a prophecy. Probably something un, un, unexpected is the answer that she got. She was here, well you he got two sons, but something even greater is happening. Verse 23. The Lord answers her, there's two nations are in your room. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, but the Older shall serve the younger. This is a massive prophecy that you should highlight and underline because the rest of the Bible will be unpacking this very verse. So we see that these womb mates are already worn against each other. They're already fighting. They're already divided in the womb. They don't have to wait till they get outside the womb. In the womb, they are fighting. And what we see is when these twins are born. They're born, one is named Esau, and one will be named Jacob. Esau becomes the father of the the nation of the Idiomites, Edom. Jacob, as we know, will become the father of Israel. And we will see throughout Old Testament history and even New Testament history that these two lines are constantly at war with one another. Not only in the womb, but it is carried on. Let me just highlight a couple of these things. Throughout the Old Testament, um, we see Israel, one of Israel's greatest enemies, the Edomites. Moses, after the exodus leading Egypt, he's traveling through the Edomites' land. And he says, hey, this is your brother Israel. This is your brother um, Israel, and we need passage through your land. Will you give us passage? And the king of Edom says, no. In fact, goes out and meets him with an army. You will not pass. We see King David at war with the Edomites where he kills 18,000 in Second Samuel chapter 8. And then by the time we get to Jesus, we know Jesus comes from the line of Jacob. Well, who's ruling at the time that Jesus is born is this guy named Herod, and he comes from the line of Edom. And what does Herod do? He makes an edict to say, hey, I want all the Jewish boys murdered under this certain age. Why? Because he's trying to root out Israel's saviour. So we see this prophecy come to true, not only just in the belly, but history onward. But no matter, this is what the Lord says. He says, here's how this is going to go down. The older will serve the younger. And we see this is the exact opposite of what should happen in that culture then. What should happen in that culture then is the younger shall serve the older. But the Lord says, no, I'm choosing something different something that goes against what culture says. And we're going to come back to that. But look at verse 24 again. The babies are born, and we see there's quite a difference between them. And it's very significant, the reason why, that that Moses is highlighting the differences in between them, the contrast. Because what we do as humans, we tend to judge by appearance. We tend to think like, here are the leaders. The leaders are Are these men or women that look great, that are intellectual, that have all this physical characteristics that we uphold, they're smart, they're intelligent, and we say, oh, they must be a great leader. But that's not the case with the Lord And as we go on. So look at verse 25. We see the contrast between the two. Uh, The first baby came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, So they called his name Elmo, right? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, they called his name Esau, right? Red and hairy. And then afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, still fighting. And they called his name Jacob, which, which literally means heel grabber. So we see that Esau was, a, was older, a few seconds older than Jacob. And then we we, we fast forward again, another 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, how many years? Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. He was a homebody. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we see this this, this contrast. And again, it's very important to point out because the, the Jewish people reading this for the first time when they got this book of Genesis in their hand the first time, they would think like, man, Esau's going to be the man. The blessing's going to come through Esau, no doubt about it. Because why? Because well, Esau was a hunter. He was, a, he was the man's man. He wore camo, right? He was an outdoorsman. He went out and hunted game. He drove a truck. He watched MMA. He was daddy's boy, Right? That was Esau. Jacob, well, he dwelt in tents. Um, he didn't wear camel. He wore an apron, right? He watched Bobby Flay on TV. That's what he did. He drove a Prius and was a mama's boy, okay? So, so <laughs> we, we see the contrast between the two, two very different people. And again, we are just like those readers, like, surely it's going to be Esau. Surely he's the man, but not so fast, my friend. And we see in the next verses the strength and weaknesses of the characteristics played out. Verse 29, we'll just read this section through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, there's his apron, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. So Jacob, again, is cooking whatever Esau brings home. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, he was called Edom or another Name a word for red. Verse 31, Jacob, being an opportunist, he was an opportunist, sees an opening to take advantage of Esau's live-in-the-moment mentality, to, to take advantage of, of Esau's impulsive behavior. And it's almost like he's been scheming this over the years because he understood what the, the, the birthright was and what he tries to steal. He says, sell me your birthright right now. And Esau said, "I'm about to die, right hyperbole. I'm about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me?" And Jacob said, "Well, then swear to me that you will sell me your birthright." And Jacob uh, to, to Jacob, and Esau said, "Sure, whatever, just give me that red chili stew. I'm starving. You can have my birthright." And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright now. We're going to really go into more detail on this in a couple of weeks when I teach you through Genesis chapter 27 because the birthright and the blessing go hand in hand. But this is a massive chain of events within the family dynamic of Isaac. The younger one just tricked, well not tricked, but just smoothed, took the opportunity and stole the birthright from the older. Uh, the birthright means a couple things. One this is how important the, the the birthright is, the firstborn. It's also known as the law of the primogenitor. Uh, the firstborn, uh, the one that had the birthright, in this case it was Esau, he would become the, the leader of the whole family, um, that everyone would serve him as the firstborn son. So Esau gave that up. And not only would he be the leader, but he would inherit a double portion of all that the uh, the, the father had. And so here we have Esau, Uh, giving up influence, giving up his right to rule, giving up millions upon millions of dollars and land for a bowl of red chili soup. The people reading this, in particular the nation Israel, their jaws would have dropped to the ground. Esau is giving all that up for a bowl of soup? And what we see here is really the beginning of the prophecy being fulfilled. And really the beginning of the doctrine of what we call election. God sovereignly choosing individuals to carry out the plan of redemption, not based on the cultural norms or what culture expects, but according to his good pleasure. Look again at Genesis twenty-five twenty-three. just to remind us. There are two nations in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger... Shall be older, shall be wiser, but the stronger, older, wiser shall serve the younger, the weaker. You see, the doctrine of election or choosing is this in a broad sense. it's that God elects or chooses to do everything that He does in whatever way he sees fit. When he acts, he does so solely because he wants to. He willfully and independently chooses to act according to his own nature and predetermined plan in good pleasure, without any pressure from outside sources or outside influence. And later on, Paul will use this this doctrine, this verse right here to prove the doctrine of election within salvation and God choosing or electing individuals for salvation and rejecting some. But the point here is in this context is that God is choosing not according to culture and what culture demands, i.e. the birthright goes to the firstborn, but he's turning that upside down in the prophecy before this uh, event of, the, of soup even happened. He said, the younger will rule over the oldest one. The the older will serve the younger. And if you've been with us again since Genesis, we've been seeing this theme, this thread, happen throughout the book of Genesis, and it will happen, again, throughout the rest of the Bible. God the Lord choosing and extending grace to the younger, to the weaker, to the insignificant, to those who don't pass the eye test, to fulfill the covenant blessing, to be the leaders of the covenant promise that will eventually lead us to the Messiah, the serpent crusher, the seed of the woman. Let me just highlight several of them, of the Lord choosing. First, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. He chose the younger one's sacrifice over the older. Then the older one said, well, I'm going to fix this, so he kills Abel. And so I will receive the birthright. But what does the Lord do? No, he doesn't give it to Cain. He gives it to who? Another younger son, Seth. We see here the younger Isaac was chosen over the older Ishmael. Here, the younger and weaker Jacob was chosen over the stronger Esau. We'll we'll look at Joseph. The, The younger Joseph was chosen before his 11 brothers over him. We look at Moses. Moses was younger than Aaron. Uh, we go on to David. David was the younger of the seven brothers, right? He was the younger, weaker one, and chosen over his six older, wiser, stronger brothers. You go to Solomon. Solomon was the younger one, chosen over Adonijah, the older one. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we see that that Jesus, uh, the one that fulfilled Genesis chapter three fifteen, the serpent crusher, the Messiah, the Savior, the seed of the woman, came from a weaker, insignificant, poor. Family was born in Bethlehem in a stable, was laid in an animal's trough, was raised in insignificant Nazareth. He didn't come through the great political, spiritual realm of the Sanhedrin, but doesn't stop there. What did Jesus do? Did he choose kings and warriors? No, he chose who to be his disciples? People that inserted tax gatherers, traders, fishermen to be the ones that carry on the message of the kingdom, the gospel. And then from there, the Lord chooses the to pass the mantle on to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, and this theme is throughout the New Testament, but just let me read this. This is us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 says this, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, not many, no, We're going to read this, and it looks like there's insignificant people, but the Lord also uses the rich and powerful to to come to Jesus and to use them and give them a platform. But but we see throughout Scripture, mainly says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But verse 27, but God chose. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are are, so that human beings might not boast in the presence of God. We we see this thread started in Genesis chapter 25 that God works differently than the culture around us, the, the cultural elites around us. He works according to His own choosing, and the Lord usually chooses insignificant instruments to work through. God doesn't look for the most educated, the most mighty, the most noble. He chooses again to work mainly through, at least in the world's eyes, insignificant people. weak people, broken people. People again, at the world's elite would mock and say, "Can anything come good? Can anything good come from that person? Can that person accomplish anything?" And the Lord says, oh, you bet you can. You just watch because I'm working through them. I am paving his paths. And as I was sitting and studying and thinking about this theme throughout Scripture, I just couldn't help think of, again, the crossing church and, and the nine years, how the Lord has chosen to work through insignificant people to build his kingdom and to change people's lives for eternity. No one in here signed any four hundred million dollar baseball contracts, right? Uh, we don't. We don't have any A list or even B list or even Z list actors or actresses right here on the silver screen, right? We we don't have any people in here that that come from uh, uh, the political pedigree families of people like the Clintons or the Bush family. I mean, over generally, we're just average people that have been given gifts by God, and we're just going about our daily lives. But the Lord has used us. About, about three weeks ago, um, some of you guys might have, I, mean, some, I know some of you guys know when you guys interact, we had about 10 college students that came from one of our sister churches in, in Illinois, Crossway Chapel, Fox Valley, and they came out to, to just do, it was their spring break a couple weeks ago, so they came out to, to just get away and to, to seek the Lord, and, and um, a handful of more unbelievers, and so they came to, to the crossing on a Sunday gathering and loved it. You guys did a great job loving them well. We we taught from the word. They loved the the preaching. They loved the worship. They loved the fellowship. They loved. It was they were just blessed. And then afterwards, myself and Senator Boney went out and. And we had uh, lunch with them, and I got to share the gospel and got to share how the Lord had chose me and worked through my life and how the crossing came about, so I got to share my testimony. And then and then midweek on, on Wednesday, uh, me, Daniel, and Brandon, they came here, and we had lunch for them for about three hours. And again, we just talked about the gospel. We answered questions. We shared testimonies. And then also they did some stuff with Mountain View. Well, three out of the ten came to Saving Faith in Jesus that week. What was interesting, one of them's name was Ishmael. And when they came to the gathering, we were in Genesis chapter 1 talking about Isaac and Ishmael in the Bible. Now, what's the coincidence of that happening? That someone coming from Illinois on a Sunday and we're in Genesis chapter 1 talking about Ishmael. Well, Ishmael comes to saving faith in Jesus. And again, it's nothing special about us or about Mountain View. It's just we're we're just insignificant people that have been Chosen by the Lord and regenerated and given His Spirit and understand His gospel and His word, and we're now sent out as ambassadors to proclaim that, and people's lives are changed for eternity. Now, that's a reality storyline that I think we all want to be a part of, don't we? To be used by God. Not only to sit and watch, but watch how the Lord elects and chooses us and, and, and brings us into that experience so that we can be agents of change, so that we can be used by him. What a great privilege we have. And that's the point of Genesis 25. The point that, that Moses is highlighting is that the Lord elects and chooses and, and moves redemptive history according to his plan, and he uses individuals that are insignificant like you and me to bring about that plan. And that's a story that we can all be a part of. That's a storyline that we all get to participate in. And one day when, when we breathe our last, just like Abraham, and, and our story comes to end uh, on this earth, we'll get to be in heaven and we'll get to see uh, how the Lord has used this church and you in particular to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chapter, Genesis chapter 25. Lord, we just see how you have orchestrated history uh, since the beginning chapters of Genesis and still today the same principles, the same theological uh, doctrine and threads are being run and the ultimate one is that you are God who chooses and elects individuals to, to work out your plan of salvation in the lives of ourselves and others. And we thank you for that. We recognize that there's nothing great about us. Uh, we were all sinners, separated from you, rebels of you. But yet, by your grace and mercy, you chose us. And you, you took us out of the, the land of darkness and brought us to light. You took our hard hearts and gave us soft hearts. You, you took out our, our selfishness and you gave us the Spirit of God, which leads to selflessness. Lord, you've given us the gospel. Not only to, for ourselves, but also then to take to others. Use us to continue to build your kingdom. Just like you used Abraham. Just like you used Isaac. Just as so we'll see, even you use Jacob. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.